welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Tamara Turner. She's a psychological anthropologist and ethnomusicologist who has spent more than 15 years researching the role of music and dance in healing across cultures. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Welcome, Tamara. Um, I don't know how Tamara and I got connected initially. She gave her talk at our informal scientific group when it was the evening and sort of blew us away. Um, She spent time, she did award-winning research in North Africa, looked at Sufi music and dance rituals. Um, She shared with us the problems with the trans-Saharan African slave trade, which we, I just honestly was not aware of at that level. And she is an academic international speaker and musician. She's published extensively across arts and health disciplines and has held research positions in the United States, Europe, and United Kingdom. So Tamara, welcome. And what happened is that I had asked her to give a talk to our group. And I was thinking, well, we know the research is that music and dance are actually healing. They change the body's physiological state. And we weren't expecting to hear what she had to tell us. But one of the basic concepts in chronic pain is that people don't want to be in pain, which is normal. It's a human condition. But the more you run from the pain, the more it chases you down. So you actually, by finding it and running from it, you actually reinforce it. So Tamara, just give me a little background. Could you, could you tell us your story, how you ended up in, you, you were actually in Africa for 15 years. Is that correct? Yeah, off and on. Thanks, David. Yeah, um, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I so I came into this world via music. Uh, my first career when I was a young person um, was very deep into classical music. My first plan for myself was to be a female conductor. I was a very serious classical music kid, did my first degree in music composition. And then as a composer, I went looking for other musical styles, musical languages, a musical toolbox, if you will. And I started traveling to West Africa in the 90s, uh, first Ghana, and, and then holding various kinds of music teaching positions. I, was, I, I did film scoring for a while, music for documentary films, and then increasingly just kept getting pulled back to North and West Africa. So at, at one point, I quit my job and bought a one-way ticket to Morocco. It was kind of just a gut uh, leap and completely got immersed in the musical cultures in Morocco. Came upon this community called Ganawa, G-N-A-W-A. And these are the descendants of slaves in Morocco from the trans-Saharan slave trade who developed an all-night-long ritual ceremony of trance dancing. Um, so I spent. You know, you know, we say trance dance, you mean like trance, like an altered mental state. Correct. T R A N C E, trance dancing. Trance yeah. dancing. Okay. Right. And so I spent a couple of years there, decided to go back to school in anthropology, in music anthropology, which we also call ethnomusicology. And I did my master's work uh, working with a ritual healer there in Marrakesh, who was uh, at the time. Uh, in his late seventies, um, and had and we and so my my musical lessons would involve herbal healing, all everything. It was like music and healing and and sort of um, what well, was a very it was a very holistic approach. 
And then um, in, in my doctoral work, I decided to check out, well, what's happening in Algeria? Nobody seems to be um, doing anything on that. And as some of you may know, in academia, it's always about kind of getting your little, your, in your corner, your niche. So I was able to get a grant in 2013 to travel to Algeria and go, go see what was happening there. So since 2013, I've been back and forth to Algeria about six or seven times, probably a total of more than two years uh, living there, learning the language, so French and Arabic, North African Arabic. And like in Morocco, there is a, a, a Black community, the descendants of slaves from the Trans-Saharan slave trade, which was a slightly different route coming up into Algeria than up through Morocco. Um, so a slightly different um, combination of ethno-linguistic groups from Sub-Saharan Africa, who also developed a, a similar practice they call Diwan, D-I-W-A-N, which is a transliteration from the Arabic Diwan. Um, it means assembly, very generally in Arabic, uh, actually an Ottoman Turkish word that, that was then incorporated into Arabic, but it means assembly. And so this also is an all night long healing ceremony using trance dancing. And I can say more about how it's connected to Sufism if you like. Um, this is a whole nother topic, could be a whole nother podcast of what is Sufism. But I think really the point is about how they're handling this, this this complex intergenerational trauma from the trans-Saharan slave trade. So we were interested because honestly, <laughs> slavery is really a horrible thing. Um, what happened in the United States here is pretty horrible, but I don't think many of us were really aware of the extent of slavery, of slave trade in Africa way before the United States. I mean, did the slave trade originate after the U.S. was founded and were we the major customer that caused this to happen or slave trade had been around forever? Because I mean, a, you showed a map that covered pretty much all the country and a lot of Africa. And it was incredible, the number of slave routes and went down to South America, went to Middle America, went to U.S. or North America. So what, I was sort of blown away with the extent of the slave trade. I mean, has this been around forever or is this something that happened after the United States was a customer? It's been around a really long time. Yeah, there was there's documentation of of uh, Roman Roman chariots going across the Sahara. So trans-Saharan traffic is very very old. The it, generally the trans-Saharan slave trade um, it it was going on for centuries, but the height of it was between the 15 and 1800s. Okay. In 1848, the French outlawed the slave trade. In 1848, but um, it did continue after that. That was just the official end of it. But there's still there was still some sort of um, you know things happening on the side. It was very much. Um, I mean, there were there was internal slavery between ethno linguistic groups, but the, but this looked quite different, where you had different um, different groups slaving with other groups, and and there were there was always power, there was always somebody in charge, and somebody who was serving the, that that community. So it was it's a it's a comp it's a complex issue, but um, with with what's going on in North Africa, um, some people may not know, but that that Mediterranean coast of North Africa, the original uh, inhabitants there are called are called Amazigh or Berber. We call them Berbers often. Um, and there, I mean, a lot of people, at, in particularly, let's say, Algiers and along the coast in Algeria, they, they look Mediterranean. So, so to be a Black person in that part of North Africa does stand out. 
And the reason I mention that is because anti-Black racism is also a part of the trauma that's being worked through. So, so Black Algerians still, um, still suffer a lot of racism, um, even though people might think, well, I thought the whole continent was was black skin, but it's um, it's a it's a range. There's a there's a range of ethnicities and ethnic groups there. So I point that out just because that is an important part too of the the geopolitical dynamics in Algeria. There is a lot of um, of racist discourse. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of dynamics going on there too that aren't just in the past that are are still happening today. And was this slave trade run mostly by Europeans or local gangs that were just capturing people? I mean. To me, it strikes me really hard. It's also the trauma of actually being captured and enslaved with just the physical torture of it, but also just the uncertainty that you could be, how do you live a normal life with knowing you could be captured tomorrow by a slave trader? I mean, just that whole incredible thing. I mean, we get upset about our day-to-day stresses in life. I always keep thinking, well, wait a second. We're not in the Catholic Inquisition days. We're not a person living in the... Algiers or in, in North Africa, it could be captured tomorrow. So it seems like there's an incredible uncertainty of just living your life day to day that's going to be unbelievable. Right, right. Yeah, and a, and a lot of the, um, so so North Africa was Arabicized, and there were there were periods where the Arabic language also was was really instrumental in the trans-Saharan slave trade. Um, the Tuareg ethno-linguistic group were were critical to transporting people across the desert because they they're a nomadic group. They live in the desert. They knew the desert well. It was an incredibly dangerous journey. So it, it's very complex. Um, to add another layer to that, um, Sufis. So, so this is a, a, a branch of Islam. Um, it's it's also it's also quite a complex subject. They were also involved in, in the slave trade. They were involved in the transit, the caravan trade, partly as protecting the caravans traveling across the desert. Um, Sufism was very much a part. It was it was working as a kind of a government institution at times. It was very much involved with geopolitics in the region. So although Sufis often get sort of pigeonholed as this mystical group and peace and love, they were actually, it's incredibly political. And throughout history, they were very much involved in the geopolitics of the region. So I found, I I spent a year digging through archives while I was in London. I did my PhD at King's College in London. Um, Fabulous libraries there where you can special order books I spent a good solid year digging through very old French sources from the 1830s, um, what was happening in the region, um, found a, a lot of discussion about, um, about, about the slave trade and, and the, the ways that Sufi, uh, Sufi leaders were involved in that and were protecting certain groups. For example, if a, if a particular individual wanted to press charges or would, had a complaint against his master or owner, he would go, he could go to a Sufi leader, so to speak, and complain, and that, that person would act on his behalf. So it was incredibly complex. Um, I've written quite a lot about this and would be happy to provide some more sources. Um, it's hard to summarize succinctly. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess I'm thinking about it out loud. I mean, I, I'm, I mean, human nature in general is not, we don't treat each other very well. This is one of the worst examples um, I can think of a, of just human slave trade just becoming normalized industry in that part of the world for hundreds of years. So let's just jump to the current moment for a second. So 
you were asked to talk to a group about rhythm and music as far as you know chronic disease and healing and like i mentioned before music and dance and rhythm and arts are very healing because it changes your body's physiology from fight or flight to safety i mean your body really does heal so now you have a group of people with unspeakable atrocities done to them um they again just that uncertainty of day-to-day life of whether you're going to be even around tomorrow whether your family's going to be intact is going to be a deal so in a way a hundred percent of that population was affected just the uncertainty plus the actual capture plus violence was so normalized i mean just a really big mess so what i was shocked at is that in in my world of medicine people don't like pain they want to get rid of it and they try to mask it run from it you know, treated with drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And what was fascinating about this, and we'll go into this in a lot more detail on the second podcast, but they actually didn't run from the pain or try to cover it up. They actually connected to the pain in this ritual. And we can, tell, we can pull apart that ritual a bit, but um, I just want to give a handle on the, what we call trance dancing, the ritual, just so we set that up a little bit for the second podcast. It's, it's, it's exactly the opposite of what I thought they would do. <laughs> they weren't talking to psychologists. They, they, were, they were actually reenacting their pain. It was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I'm, um, I'm happy to say as, as much as you'd like about, about trance, there's one, one point to make is there's many, many different levels of that in the ritual that allow people, and I'm, this this could connect in t- terms of trauma literature out there in the U.S., these different levels of trance allow people to connect to that pain in the way that they're ready. So there will be expert trance dancers who go who really go deeply into it, and you'll see various levels of dissociation. Uh, what I found maybe most fascinating about that dissociation um, Within the anthropological literature on music and trance, there's a lot of discussion about spirit possession, which has been really heavily pathologized. And it's a reason why I don't use the word possession because it really has so much baggage, colonial baggage to it. Um, but but what's happening is people are um, in, in various states of trance, it can be a, a, a lighter stage of sort of rapture or when you get caught up in your emotions, like absorption, like the times that you might read a book and then lose track of time. So something from that to what we see at um, music concerts where people lose themselves all the way to almost complete dissociation where you, 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 you sense that the person has really, their consciousness is gone and something else is taking place. So, so, so let me back up just for a second. So let's sure. define this trance dancing a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you my perspective watching your your movies or videos is that so trance it simply means an altered state right some Correct. altered state and then again I could be wrong on this one but my impression was they're actually they're actually re-experiencing their pain which did they get into an altered state first or did experiencing their pain create the altered state in other words they used a combination of a lot of people community very structured very defined music, rhythm, and dance to create an altered state. So I hadn't thought about this before. If you're totally immersed in playing the piano or something like that, you're in an altered state in a way. And again, instead of creating an altered state by just relaxation and whatever, they're actually 
were re-experiencing their trauma. Did I get that right? You're absolutely correct. That's a great clarification. Okay. Yeah. So you okay, so I let's take me as a person who's been severely actually captured bad things done to me, and I'm not very happy about that. Why would I do a trance dance? Why would I be the person to be the top? So by the way, as far as the pictures, why there's a lot of people in the room and a couple of people, a few people running the show, and the person. There's always one person going through a dance and going into a altered state. Okay, so I'm having a bad day or bad life, and I decide to do a trance dance ritual. Why would I do that? How do they choose to do this? What it usually looks like is it. it um, I would use the word even erupts. It 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 ignites or it erupts from emotion. So what you'll see happen most of the time is somebody who's sitting in the audience who starts to shake or cry, some kind of expression of emotion that, that is like a softening of a boundary or a threshold where they start to, they start to feel something bubbling up in their body. And okay. you'll, you'll probably find this interesting, but um, a lot of times they, they are resistant to it themselves. Um, well, I would be sitting in the women's section usually and, and uh, let's say I'm sitting next to a woman who starts to rock and shake and she's moaning and she's starting to feel this emotion, this pain coming up again. And everybody around her is saying, get up, get up. You have to go dance, get up. And she's saying, no, no, I don't want to, no, no. And finally they actually pull her up and bring her to the dance space and encourage her, pat her on the back, start playing the, playing the themes that help her get more deeply into her pain. Some people will actually even run out of the ritual. It, it is an uncomfortable feeling for them too, but you've, there's already this uh, bubble of safety with that ritual community, with your friends, your family members, people you've known your entire life. And even, and even in that environment, there's still that moment of resistance that I often saw. But the, but the, the whole idea is to get people into the space to start moving it physically. So as they're expressing their emotion, they're not supposed to just sit there and cry. They're supposed to actually get up and start moving that in their body. And by doing that and following those sensations, that's what takes them into another state of consciousness. So what they're doing, they're connecting their mind to their body in a way. Mm-hmm. And so instead of suppressing all these emotions, they're connecting to them, which doesn't feel very good. I mean, that is the problem with chronic pain. The emotional pain and physical pain are processed in some of the parts of the brain. Emotional pain hurts, so we suppress it, and all of us do. So anyway, what we so I'm really intrigued that somehow they figured out by experiencing the pain instead of running from it, that that had a healing modality to it. So before I go to that, which we'll go to in some detail in a second podcast, so this ritual dances in a tent. I saw that correctly. And how many people are in the tent about? Uh, there can be some, they can be quite small, um, 50 to 60 people up to several hundred people, depending on the space. Sometimes they're held outdoors if, if possible. Yeah. So, so it's not like I, um, I schedule a trance dance. They just hold a trance dance and then people in the audience as they feel it come up and go into the ritual. Did I, is that what you just a said? Person, a person can actually um, ask for one, commit almost commission one, and, and if, especially if they have the, the financial means, they will hire a troop and hold it in their home and then invite close friends. That happens on a regular basis too. So they can either happen on um, important calendrical events around the holidays um, 
or they can be commissioned by somebody who who really needs that and feels that they that they really want that and then lots of other people will come to and take part so when people so one person's quote schedule the dance and then other people in the audience as they feel can actually get up and participate also correct okay and how long do these dances usually last they usually start around sunset and finish at dawn so eight to nine hours yeah all night long and how often does a given village hold these once a week once a month when I was there this last summer, um, and also because we were coming out of COVID and people were really eager to have as many ceremonies as possible, I was going to tw twice a week going to all night long ceremonies and I, I could barely keep up with them because I, after being up for an entire night, I would need to sleep for a couple of days to catch up. But yeah, some people would go three times a week if, if, there's, a, if there's time in their schedule, yeah. And the final question I'm going to ask in this part of the podcast, I really want to go into the reasons. I mean, it's so fascinating to me that in modern medicine, we're trying to get rid of symptoms, trying to, you know, what and we have this thing called self-esteem. We're trying to whitewash the past and they're just walking dead into this thing. And that's the essence of healing. So I'm really curious about how they figured this out. They don't, they didn't have research. They didn't have psychologists. They just flat out somehow instinctively figured this out. And so I find that really fascinating. So my final question is, okay, Sam, I've gone through a trans dance, um, and how do people feel? Do they feel better? Do they do multiple ones? Is it really something that lasts for a long time? I mean, what's the effect of a trans dance? They speak a lot about it as, as releasing and letting go and letting off steam, um, Sometimes they'll use French words as well as Arabic words. And I'm trying, it's diff sometimes kind of difficult to find the right words in English to translate, but it is a kind of externalization. So that emotional expression, the physical dance, I mean, even just the physical exhaustion of working yourself um, while you're crying. I mean, I, you saw in some of the videos, people are, are sometimes screaming, crying, sometimes slapping their thighs. Um, like really delving deeply into that physiologically. And, and, and in a sense, yes, reenacting it, it, it is a way of clearing it out. It is a, it's like the pressure cooker, the valve that lets off the steam. And, and then not to mention the fact that the, the family and the community are there so that when this person passes out of exhaustion or, or tiredness, your community is there to comfort you and encourage you. So it is, it is a way of really intentionally moving towards that. And, um, and I'm it, assuming the benefits are pretty high when I mean, people feel better. Yeah. Okay. Then is that lasting? Effect? Yeah. I mean, there's. Did it last for a while? I mean, the benefits last for a while. Yeah, I, I think one one thing to add that complicates it is so so these rituals are also incredibly social events and also fun. So despite the fact that there's a lot of pain being released, there's this really lovely way that there's also kids running around and people eating food. It's quite normalized. Like the, there isn't this sense of, um, you know, we're all supposed to be super serious right now, but that is happening, but it's kind of the full range of human emotion taking place during these rituals so that um, people will do this as like almost like every weekend. Um, so even though there, there's that healing aspect to it, it, it's not that they just stop after a couple of weeks and that's it. This is, this is something that they're doing that's part of their community, part of their history um, as, 
as descendants of slaves and through their ancestors. Um, so in a way, it's like nobody ever just stops doing it, really. I never met somebody who, who, who said they were cured and then they left and stopped doing it. Right. The only, yeah. So it's difficult to say, you know, because it's not our model where, OK, well, now I'm done. Now I go on with my life. So, right. yes, I say it helps, but they, but they do keep doing it throughout right. their life. Okay, well, Tamara, thank you. Um, we're going to go in the second podcast a lot more detail about the actual reasons why these dances seem to work. Again, I'm very perplexed how they figure this out without modern psychology. And so it's very fascinating. So Tamara, um, I know you're working on a book, which is not published yet, and you publish all sorts of papers. And if we want to read your papers, just type your name into the internet, correct? Just Tamara Turner. Yeah, on academia.edu, uh, which is an academic platform, uh, you can actually download some PDFs of my articles okay. online. There are a couple of my articles that are open access. If you type in Tamara Turner and especially D1, D-I-W-A-N, you'll find a lot there as well. Okay. Well, Tamara, thank you very much. It was a very eye-opening lecture for us, and I'm looking forward to our second podcast. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Tamara Turner, for being on the show today and for sharing the origins of her award-winning research into the role of dance and healing in North African communities. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.